all of us probably have um, memories. Certainly, we have memories of watching kids bring palm branches into the sanctuary, unless you've got like short-term memory loss. But um, all of us probably have memories of doing that ourselves, or uh, maybe even as adults, um, carrying palm branches into the church and celebrating the, the greeting of Jesus on Palm Sunday as He triumphantly rides into Jerusalem. Um, but I'm struck by the fact that we often have not done a great job in the church explaining the significance of palm branches. So, I want to take a couple minutes this morning and talk about why these things matter. Um, palm branches actually show up throughout the Bible. They show up for the first time in a theological way in the book of Leviticus. Palm branches are one of four kinds of foliage the Israelites are supposed to use in the celebration of some of their festivals. They show up as late as at the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, uh, John writes, Then I looked. And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were a symbol in the ancient world of victory. They were a symbol for Egyptians and for Romans and for Greeks and for Jews. Uh, it was kind of an understood thing. A palm branch means victory. And so, when the Israelites are waving palm branches at Jesus as He rides into Jerusalem, and as they are saying, Hosanna, save us, um, they are envisioning a very particular kind of victory and a very particular kind of king. Uh, they are envisioning that Jesus will be the one to defeat the Romans, save them from the Roman occupation, make them free again, make them God's chosen people independent again. And they think Jesus is going to be the king of Israel. That's what they call Him, right? The king of Israel, the new king like David to defeat our enemies. Palm branches actually um, have a little more significance just for the Jewish people. They actually become not just a symbol of victory, but of Jewish nationalism. So, uh, in the later part of the first and early part of the second centuries AD, there are two Jewish revolutions where they go to war with the Romans. And the first is 66 to 70 AD, uh, about 30 plus years after Jesus has died and um, risen and ascended to heaven. And in, in that first revolution, the first Jewish revolt, the temple is destroyed. And the second revolution is like 30, uh, 132 to 136 A.D., so almost 100 years after Jesus. And at the end of that revolution, the entire city of Jerusalem is destroyed. That's the end of even a pretend Jewish nation-state ruled by Rome. They just get totally moved around and wiped out. But for a little while, they are successful. Uh, and in that second revolution, uh, the 132 to 136 revolution, um, not only do they reconquer Jerusalem for a few years from the Romans and push out their enemies, um, but they kind of set up their own nation state. And one of the things they have to do is they have to make coins uh, because you got to have money. You can't run a country without money. And they don't have any coins to use, so they take the Roman coins that are around and they reprint um, on those coins their own images. Because they're Jews, they won't print images of people. That would be idolatrous. And so, what do you think they put on their coins? Palm branches. I actually have a picture of a coin from this era, and you can just kind of make out that there is a palm branch, a palm tree, in fact, on that coin, one of the few that we found in excavations from this era. Palm branches are a sign of Jewish nationhood. Uh, and 
they are a sign that, hey, maybe we can throw off the shackles of our enemies, rise up and conquer and defeat them. And so when Jesus is riding in Jerusalem and they are waving palm branches, they are saying, Jesus, we hope you're going to come in and kick the Romans' butts, right? We want you to come in and deal with our problems in a very particular way. We want you to be a war maker, And let's be fair um, to our our Jewish ancestors. Um, Something feels good about that, doesn't it? Something feels good about saying, hey, I'm going to crush my enemies. I'm going to beat them down. Um, Might makes right. We got a lot of good movies and books and video games and sports about, hey, we're going to beat the other guy till at the end of the day, I'm the winner and they're the loser and everybody knows it. We also try to apply this in our individual lives, I think, sometimes, don't we? We think, all right, well, uh, you insult me, I'm going to insult you back. You, you deceive me, I'm going to deceive you back. You threaten me, I'll threaten you worse. Uh, you hit me, I hit back harder. Uh, and we have this thought that, boy, if I can just one-up you enough, eventually we'll get to a point where, uh, you know, you just admit that I'm better than you. How's that working for you? How many of you got to a point with your brother or sister where they finally admitted you are just smarter and better than me? How many of you got to a point um, where you finally convinced your spouse, you know what, you are right most of the time? Women, keep your hands down. Um, This idea that we are going to conquer our enemies, to beat them, to one-up them, to war-make them, um, is, is just almost an unshakable falsehood, right? We just can't get it out of our systems. It is our, almost our natural response to conflict. We think that we'll be able to, to win by overpowering or responding in kind, and yet we just almost never see that work out. That's the story that Jacob and Laban are in in our Scripture this morning, Jacob is the heel grabber, right? The one who's like the serpent. He's the deceiver, the trickster. And Laban is just… These guys are like two peas in a pod, right? They just can't be honest to save their lives. Uh, Jacob steals his birthright and the blessing from his brother. Laban tricks Jacob into marrying his daughter. Jacob tricks Laban into giving him wages. Laban tricks David into trying to hide which flocks and sheep he can have, and Jacob tricks him again, and finally Jacob tricks him and runs away, and Laban says, hey, you know what? I've had enough of your tricks. Um, Me and my boys are going to catch up with you, and we're going to have a little conversation. And in this moment, um, everything seems to suggest that this escalating series of deceptions is going to result in violence. Even the language in this text, um, we don't get it as much as we read it, but the language in this text in the original Hebrew sounds very violent. Um, When they pitch their tents, they don't pitch their tents, they impale their tents in the ground, right? I mean, like even putting their tents up, they're angry when they're doing it. Uh, We we hear uh, that the frustration of Jacob coming forth Um, venting about everything he's ever done, this sort of sandbagging of all the bad stuff. We hear Laban saying, hey, not only did you steal my my children, my grandchildren, and my children, my wives, and all of my wealth, um, but you also even took my household gods. You said you're a follower of Yahweh. Why are you taking these other gods? 
But God intervenes. Our God, the real God, intervenes. He has a moment where He shows up with Laban and He has a dream and He says, Laban, it's not for you to do Tovarah. You're not the decider of what's good and what's evil. Ooh, this sounds like a story we've heard before. Uh, and so, something incredible happens in this moment. Instead of this escalating one-upmanship, this war-making, this I'm going to do it better than you that leads to violence, they make a covenant of peace. They make this sacred agreement, this sacred promise to each other. And I want you to notice a, a couple of things, actually three things really quick about this covenant that I think are significant. Uh, the first is um, this is an echo of a lot of stories we've heard in Genesis so far. We had Abraham and Abimelech. We had Isaac and Abimelech. This idea that um, at this moment of potential bloodshed, there is a choice to be made. Uh, and God's people are expected to make this kind of choice to say, hey, instead of war, can we do something different? Can we make some kind of agreement uh, that avoids the conflict we're walking into? Um, so, we have this pattern in Genesis. Second thing I want you to notice is there's this weird bit about the heap. Uh, Gilead sounds from gal lead, gal meaning heap, lead meaning witness. So, it's a, a heap of witness. And what's the heap made out of? Anybody catch that? Stones. Yeah, stones, rocks, right? So, throughout Scripture, rocks are a great offensive weapon. What do people use rocks for? They use them for stonings, right? We'll throw rocks at you until you die. It can be a way of judicial punishment. It can be a weapon of war. Uh, it is an offensive tool, and so with, with great significance that all of the men on both sides of this conflict go out and gather rocks, but they don't throw them at each other. They make a heap, right? They make a big old pile of rocks. And they say, hey, this pile of rocks is going to be a witness between you and between me that we're not using them for war, that we're, we're going to do something different. These are stones um, not to cast, but to gather together, right? Stones to build something, not to destroy. A witness that things can be done differently. Uh, and then, I hope you notice this, there's a really weird ending to this story. So they make their covenant. Instead of a fight, they have a feast. Laban leaves. And the next thing that happens is that Jacob sees angels. So many angels, in fact, that he thinks it's like another encampment. We had the, the encampment of Laban and his boys, his army, his people. We had the encampment of Jacob and his family and his people. And then there's like a third camp, the camp of the angels that are all around. And it's a really weird story. The part that you heard about the angels is the only part they have. They don't have a conversation with Jacob. They don't do any miracles. They don't guide the way back to his homeland. They just show up for a minute. It's like his eyes are opened and he sees um, that God's people are with him. So, in all of this, I, I think there is this central, incredibly important concept um, that, that God's trying to express to the stories of Laban and Jacob that we're going to hear even more clearly in the story of Jesus, uh, that God calls us uh, to something different, not to war-making, but to peacemaking. And, and Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Before we picked up this morning, He says, "'Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God.'" Uh, I got to say, this is one of those things that's easy to misinterpret. In fact, people have been misinterpreting this um, from the very first time it was said. I have some original footage um, of the first Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was speaking, and I want you to pay attention to how people misunderstand this beatitude. Would you just play that for me? 
I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. <laughs> so, there we go. Uh, so, blessed are the cheesemakers seems appropriate for Wisconsin, but um, that's not what he said. Um, blessed are the peacemakers. So, so, I think Palm Sunday is all about peacemaking. Palm Sunday is all about the way of Christ and not the way of the world. It's all about this moment where, where the people of God are saying, we want you to be our war-making king. And Jesus says, no, I, I came to be something different. And by the way, that different thing has always been the message of our God. And as the crowds on Palm Sunday proclaim their love of their nation and their desire to have Jesus kill the Romans, you know what Jesus starts to do? Luke 19, 41, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts all around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave you within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Jesus says, I know what's going to happen in 30 years. I know what's going to happen in 100 years. I know how your city and your temple will be destroyed because you go down this path of thinking that war-making against the Romans is what God wants for you. And I want you to know that those who live by the sword will die by the sword, that our God has a different plan and I am a different kind of Savior. What is it that's so hard about peacemaking? Well, I mean… It, it's hard to make peace even with those people that we love. Um, peacemaking requires us to, to love our neighbors, right? To want good for them at some expense to ourselves. That's our working definition of love, wanting good for someone at some expense to ourselves. And that's tough even when it's like our spouse or our sibling or our friend or our coworker when we're frustrated with them. Um, it's easy to want good for you. I want you to have ice cream, but not if there's only one scoop left because then I want to have the ice cream, right? I, I want you to get in line as long as you're in line behind me. Um, uh, I, I want you to be heard and listened to as long as you hear and listen to me first. Uh, I want you to be promoted as long as, as long as I get an equal or greater promotion. And, and loving your enemy is even harder, right? Loving your enemy means wanting good for those who want bad for you. We have a lot of sports and video games and movies about war making because it's fun. We don't have any sports or video games or movies about peacemaking, not many. But every now and then, uh, every now and then, peacemaking shows up accidentally or Christologically in the midst of our normal worldly perspectives of conflict and victory. Um, I came across an article this week that I was really excited about. Uh, I think maybe I've mentioned before that I'm a, a, a Duke basketball fan. And um, I, I saw an article this week that said that Coach Krzyzewski, Mike Krzyzewski was the former Duke basketball coach, is the 2022-2023 recipient of the Dean Smith Award. Okay, so if you don't know, I mean, you should, but if you don't know um, about the, the UNC-Duke rivalry, let's have a little refresher course. Dean Smith 
is the um, most famous, most successful uh, college basketball coach of UNC Chapel Hill, right, of University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And when Mike Krzyzewski first came to Duke, Dean Smith was at the prime of his career. I have a picture of Dean Smith and Coach K, actually. Leave that up for a minute, okay? Um, so when they first came, Dean Smith was, you know, at the pinnacle of the basketball world, and Coach K was this up-and-coming guy, and so he had a lot to prove. Uh, and they were not buddies, right? I mean, and again, uh, UNC fans and Duke fans usually not buddies, Uh, And so it was pretty shocking for a lot of people um, when Coach K this year was awarded the Dean Smith Award for Excellence in Basketball. Uh, It's it's supposed to be given to someone who embodies Dean Smith's spirit and values. Uh, And as striking as that is, I think this is really an interesting moment. Uh, See, after Coach K was sort of established a little bit and no longer chasing Smith and had some self-confidence in himself, um, he and Dean Smith actually kind of became friendly. He got more and more appreciative of, of Dean Smith's brilliance. Uh, and this, there's an article by J.D. King where he says, uh, Dean Smith was famously loyal to his players, had many good qualities that rivalry tended to obscure. Perhaps most importantly, Smith consistently challenged the segregation that was in place when he came to Chapel Hill in 1958. Dean Smith was also the coach who really pushed USA Basketball to pick Mike Krzyzewski to be our Olympic team basketball coach. Over time, Dean and Mike became good friends, and near the end of Dean's life, when both families were at the beach together, Mike even told Dean that he loved him. Coach K said famously that in all his 42 years at Duke, he only went to Chapel Hill 42 times, meaning he went there only for the games and for no other reason. Um, But that's not really true. Uh, He made a 43rd trip for Dean Smith's funeral service, and on that occasion, he wore a Carolina blue tie. Sometimes we begin to recognize, you can take that down, thank you. Sometimes we begin to recognize um, that there is an alternative to our war-making. There is an alternative to our one-upmanship. There is an alternative to beating the other guy, uh, and that alternative is what Christ calls peacemaking. Peacemaking has these really interesting components. Uh, Jesus connects it with being perfect. Did you notice that? He said, hey, if you love your neighbor, um, if you love your enemy, if you turn the other cheek, if you go the extra mile, um, you're going to be perfect like God is perfect. Um, somehow, this idea of loving our enemies as God loves us is so central to the quest to be Christ-like that it is the thing Jesus highlights when He describes what perfection looks like. Turning the other cheek isn't about being a victim. It's about a different kind of victory where the goal isn't winning, the goal is peace. The goal is shalom. The goal is this unity. Uh, And when we find that, we also begin to recognize that's God's goal, that God's purpose throughout the whole story of Scripture has always been to reunite us with Himself and with each other and to, to remake this shalom, this peace for which we were designed. And I believe that this is why at this moment when Jacob and Laban choose to go down a Christ-like path uh, of, of peacemaking and not war-making, his eyes are opened. And for a moment, he sees the kingdom of God in his midst. For a moment, he sees 
camp of God's angels around them. For a moment he realizes, ah, this is God's good plan for the world. This leads us to some really simple and practical applications. Um, I want to ask you today, uh, in those moments when you find yourself drawn into that one-upmanship, whether it's with a, a family member or a friend or a coworker, somebody that you care about deeply, or whether it's with somebody you don't know or somebody you don't agree with or somebody that feels like an enemy, um, I think we're, we're called to ask just some really simple question, whose good am I most concerned about? In this moment, do I care only about my good, or am I able to love this other person in such a way that I want their good at some expense to myself? Am am I following the way of the world or the way of Christ, the way of palms or the way of peace? It's really a simple question. We would love to have a king who rides in on a white charger Uh, at the head of a mighty army and smashes our enemies. But we got a king who rides in on a donkey, who weeps when his people ask him to be a warrior. We got a king who said, I have come to save you from so much more than just your simple earthly problems. I've come to save you from eternal problems. I've come to give you an eternal home. I've come to set you eternally free. And when we can think and live In that mindset, it completely changes how we follow Christ and how we love our neighbors and, yes, how we love our enemies. There was a Christian monk named Telemachus uh, who lived at the end of the 4th and early 5th centuries A.D. Uh, He came to the city of Rome on January 1st, 404 A.D., and um, there are a couple of stories about Um, his encounter in that moment. But I'm going to tell that version of his story that was told actually by Ronald Reagan in a prayer breakfast in 1984. He said, the power of prayer can be illustrated by the story that goes back to the 4th and 5th century. Uh, The monk Telemachus followed a crowd into the Colosseum, and he saw the gladiators come forth, stand before the emperor and say, we who are about to die salute you. And he realized they were going to fight to the death for the entertainment of the crowds. He cried out, in the name of Christ, stop. And his voice was lost in the tumult there in the great Colosseum. And as the games began, the crowd saw this scrawny little figure making his way down the stadium seating and toward the gladiators saying again and again, in the name of Christ, stop. And at first they thought it was part of the entertainment and they were amused. And then he went out onto the sands themselves, and he stood between the gladiators, and he pleaded with them, in the name of Christ, stop. And the crowds realized it wasn't a game, and they began to be belligerent and angry, and the gladiators are angry and yelling, and he continues to stand between them and say, in the name of Christ, stop. And then finally, The crowds begin to throw stones, and one of the gladiators plunges his sword into Telemachus' body. As he falls to the sand in the arena of death, his last words were, in the name of Christ, stop. Strange thing happened after Telemachus died. Gladiators stood looking at this tiny form laying in the sand. 
the crowds who were just throwing stones and jeering fall silent. And then somewhere in the upper tiers, an individual makes his way to the exit and leaves, and then others begin to follow. And in the dead silence, everyone left the Colosseum. It is a matter of historical fact that this was the last battle to the death between gladiators and the Roman Colosseum. Never again did anyone kill or did men kill each other for the entertainment of the crowd. One tiny voice that could be hardly heard above the tumult, in the name of Christ, stop. It is something we could be saying to each other throughout the world today. And I would say it's something we might even say to ourselves. There's a double meaning of laying down our palm branches as we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's not just that we want Him to be King because He has the power to raise the dead, because He has the power to walk on water, because He can stop storms and heal the sick. We, we lay our palm branches down because we want the kind of King that Jesus is to be our King, a peacemaking and not war-making King, a merciful and not merely just King who dies for His enemies instead of killing them. These palms are our witness heap. They are the place where we lay down our pride and our self-righteousness and our certainty that we are right and everyone else is wrong and our desire to make others see our truth at any cost. And we say, you know what? Let's just go follow the guy on the donkey and see where he leads us. Thanks be to God. Amen.